Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. A science story, huh? It was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hey everybody, welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true, personal stories about science. I am your host, Aaron Barker, and this week we're presenting stories about the difficulties of following directions. Sometimes in science, it's very important to follow directions. (laughs) When I was in high school, I was a terrible biology student, and I relied very heavily on my lab partner, who was my good friend Scotty. And I think my biology teacher sort of caught on to this because she reassigned all of the lab partners, and this time we couldn't choose. And I got matched up with this girl named Laura who loathed me for very complicated reasons uh, related to a boy named Thomas McClune. Shout out to Thomas if he's listening. Anyway, I had to start figuring out how to do science on my own after that, and I actually started learning and getting better. And then one day we had this assignment. Honestly, I can't for the life of me remember what it was supposed to be teaching us or what exactly it was. But basically we had to put all these things in a Petri dish and mix them around and then stick them in an incubator. And Mrs. Deke made this really big deal about how it had to go in the incubator right side up. It couldn't be upside down or else the whole thing would be ruined and we'd get a zero on the assignment. If anybody out there knows or has any idea what this could possibly have been, uh, tweet at me and let me know, because I have no idea. Anyway, on this day, Laura was actually being really nice to me, and I started to think, oh, maybe things are going well. Maybe we turn a corner. And she was being so nice to me that she actually, at the end of class, offered to take my Petri dish to the incubator for me. Friends, I think you know where this is going. Laura put my Petri dish in upside down. She put hers in right side up. She got an A. I got a zero. Laura, you win. And honestly, you can have Thomas McClune. He's all yours. Okay, enough about me. Let's hear from some other folks who have trouble following directions. Our first story today is from Joseph Scrimshaw. It was recorded in January 2018 at the Lyric Hyperion in Los Angeles. The theme that night was Journeys. I think it probably tells a lot about my relationship with science that I want to begin my story by saying something about Star Wars. Uh, 
in the most recent film, uh, The Last Jedi, there is a scene toward the end where our, our triumphant heroes, the Resistance, are making their desperate final stand on this exotic alien world called Crate. And they are dug into trenches. And one brave Resistance fighter, whose name is Sergeant Sharp, uh, he reaches out his finger and he runs it across this uh, weird white substance that's covering the planet and reveals the red earth below. And then he takes that white substance on his finger. He brings his finger to his mouth. He tastes, and then he says, salt! And I love that moment because it is bizarre and stupid. Because as soon as I saw that, I said, why? Why did he do that? Why did he pause the action of this epic space fantasy to just taste some dirt? Uh, and then I realized, oh, well, it's, it's probably just, you know, to make sure that the basic facts are clear, to make sure that the audience knows that white stuff isn't snow, it's salt, and this is why there's cool red ground underneath. He really just wants to make it clear to people who have not read the entry for the Planet Crate on Wikipedia. <laughs> if you're not familiar with Wikipedia... It is Wikipedia, but just for Star Wars, and I am absolutely certain that it is far more accurate than actual Wikipedia. <laughs> By, like, a lot. I am dead certain of that. Uh, so this scene really stuck with me because it is a good snapshot of my relationship with science. It is a fantasy that is briefly interrupted by basic facts. Uh, <laughs> A basic fact about me is that I love Star Wars, I love Star Trek, I love Doctor Who, I love Moonraker, the James Bond film where he goes to space. It's terrible, but he goes to space. Uh, so I love all of these things, and I always have things that make me very, very interested in science, but also make me too distracted to actually learn science. Uh, since I was a very young kid, I remember being in classes and the science teacher would be telling me something very interesting about the dirt on Mars. And I would just be imagining space wizards cutting each other's limbs off with laser swords on Mars. Uh, and uh, it made me develop a bad habit where I always focus on the romantic and the narrative and have a hard time focusing on scientific precision and the basic facts. Well, I got a job uh, a while back where I had no choice but to face this bad habit of mine. Uh, I was living in Minneapolis, Minnesota at the time, and I got a job at a place called Mill City Museum. Now, uh, this uh, is a brand new building that is built inside the ruins of the Washburn Crosby A-Mill, which is this old flour mill that was built in the late 1800s. And this building had exploded once and burned down twice. So it was a very exciting place to work. Uh, and my job title there was interpreter, which meant I was literally supposed to interpret the stories that were being told at the museum. And the museum had all of these interesting stories to tell. It told the story of the St. Anthony Falls, the only major waterfall on the Mississippi, and how the power of that waterfall created this new technology in flour milling, which made the flour milling industry explode, which basically created the city of Minneapolis, and how then Minneapolis became the flour mill capital of the world. And because people kept getting injured in those flour mills, it also became the artificial limb capital of the world <laughs> at the exact same time. 
And that fascinated me because of Star Wars and all the lost limbs there. So I was really, really engaged with all of these cool stories we got to tell. Uh, the company that owned this mill, Washburn Crosby Company, eventually became General Mills. So we also told the story of Betty Crocker and the Pillsbury Doughboy and the science of baking convenience foods. And uh, the early kind of history of advertising as we know it was partially created there. There was an early advertising campaign by a man, and I'm not making this up, an ad man named B.S. Bull. Actual name of one of the people who gave us modern marketing. Very, very perfect. Uh, so I was very engaged by all of the fun, narrative, romantic stories to be told, but I was also faced with, uh, to use a technical term, a metric shit ton of science. Uh, there were a lot of older, uh, I'll just say it, older men, a lot of older men who really questioned the physics of how the mill actually worked and made flour. So uh, on the floor, we had this big model of the actual functioning mill. And a lot of these uh, men would come up and they'd go like, well, I don't know. I don't think that actually worked. I don't think that could have worked. You need like, you know, the PSI that's like 100 pounds of square root to fulminate the chaff. And like they knew just enough to be dangerous. But I had to try to be polite and uh, say, like, oh, yeah, well, that's uh, very interesting. It, it did work <laughs> because we're here. <laughs> the city of Minneapolis is here. This is not like a, a group hallucination <laughs> or anything. This is real. I tried not to say that last part. Uh, so it was very trying because I had to know the facts really well because there were all of these uh, older men who felt it was their natural birthright to somehow intrinsically know exactly how flour milling technology from precisely 1887 worked. And they had to know it better than the employees. So I had to really study up. But that was nothing compared to the challenges of working in the baking lab. So we had this actual functioning kitchen where we were supposed to bake bread and cookies and all sorts of things and then share them with the audience and display our knowledge of the actual science of baking. And this terrified me. Uh, I grew up very, very nerdy, so I was used to being mocked. Uh, but because being verbally mocked is a precursor to actually physically being bullied, being verbally mocked sets off my fight or flight response. So the thought of being in this baking lab and having 70 and 80 year old people who have spent their entire lives baking, staring at me and judging me made me want to either run away or physically fight them, <laughs> which is obviously not a good choice uh, for keeping my job. So uh, I had to start small and one day I was asked to please just make some brownies and not even brownies from scratch, brownies from a box. And I was supposed to just make these and set these out for children to eat. And I was truly, honestly frightened that I would accidentally poison and murder children. <laughs> because I had no cooking skills whatsoever at that point in my life. At that point in my life, the only thing I had actually made is a frozen pizza, and I had messed that up. <laughs> now, you may be asking yourself, how do you actually mess up a frozen pizza? I find it to be very simple, be in your 20s, and also be drunk. This is a thing I've been many times, and I've messed up frozen pizza many, many times. Uh, so I was assigned a helper to make me, help me make the simplest thing ever. And my helper had two jobs. He worked at the museum, and then in his other job, he was a chemist. So I would try to ask him questions, and 
he didn't understand. The questions were so incredibly dumb and basic, he literally could not comprehend what I was asking him. So I was very much left to my own devices, and I did the first step, which is to get this big tub of sugar and pour out two cups and then mix it with a brownie mixture and some eggs. I said the first step. That's actually pretty much all the steps. It's about all there is to it. Uh, And then I started uh, mixing it together, and as soon as I started mixing it all together, I realized something was not right. Uh, The mixture began to harden and clump like concrete, like delicious, delicious chocolate concrete. Uh, And I showed it to my helper, and he's like, yeah, that is not right. How did you do that? He actually sounded impressed that I'd managed to screw this up. And How did you do that? And I said, I have no idea. And he said, well, put it in the oven and see what happens. (laughs) So we put this pan of brownies in the oven, and we were treated to an amazing show. The brownies began to sparkle in the oven. It looked exactly like the transporter effect from the original Star Trek. And I called my helper friend over again and I asked him to look and he's just like, wow. (laughs) He honestly seemed like he was like high and literally watching these lights like they were a Pink Floyd laser show as these brownies went off and suddenly he went, wait, wait. And he went over and he got out that tub of sugar and he ran his finger through that mysterious white substance. He brought his finger to his mouth, tasted it and said, salt. I had made brownies with two full cups of salt. (laughs) And this immediately spread through the museum incredibly fast. So people came down like, how did he do this? Like literally physically. And how can he be that dumb? And uh, the big question on everybody's mind is, is it any way that these are possibly edible? And for some reason, I felt it was like my duty, my penance for my stupidity to eat a salt brownie. Why not? So I carved out a brownie, uh, and I took one bite, and uh, everybody laughed and was very entertained and all of that. Uh, And then immediately, all moisture left my entire body. (laughs) I believe the word moisture actually disappeared from my vocabulary, sucked out. Uh, and I decided I, I need to excuse myself to the bathroom. So uh, I went to the bathroom, and I just started drinking glass of water, glass of water, and it was making no effect. It was like my entire digestive system was now just this sponge, and there was just nothing that was going to happen. So I kept pounding the water to try to fix it, and then suddenly I realized, oh, wow, I might need to vomit up all of this salt brownie water that I have created inside my body. But I did not vomit. I contained it. Got to the end of the day, destroyed the brownies, just got rid of them, and uh, and the the legend spread. Everybody's happy, and I was very very proud of myself Uh, overall. They're like, hey, hey, I think that that went okay ultimately. And then I had the epiphany that if your day at work becomes the proudest thing that you've done is successfully not vomit because of your own stupidity, that is not a great day at work. 
that is not a thing to be proud of. Uh, so I really did buckle down, and I got much better at learning the science of baking, and I did actually successfully bake bread in front of people and then serve it to them, and they uh, claimed to enjoy it, and they did not die, so that was a huge success. And I've really carried that story with me, not only working at the museum and not only uh, for science-type stuff, but just for basic life to remember that it's great uh, to be connected to the the romantic and the exciting and the narrative, but to try to have, uh, if not great knowledge of science, to have respect for like the most basic part of the scientific process, which is just checking the details. Never just take a tub of something and just trust to always check, to always, always be that resistant soldier and run your fingers through the white stuff because it might be salt. Thank you. That was Joseph Scrimshaw. Joseph is a comedian, writer, and host based in Los Angeles, as well as the producer of The Story Collider's quarterly Los Angeles show. As a comedian, he's performed around the country and has headlined Jonathan Colton's Joko Cruise and appeared on Will Wheaton's Tabletop. He has written for Adult Swim, Riff Tracks, and Screen Junkies, and was a writer and performer on Wits, where he wrote sketches for Paul F. Tompkins, Dave Foley, Neil Gaiman, and more. Joseph's plays have been performed all over the U.S., the U.K., and strangely, Bulgaria. His popular comedy podcast, Obsessed, is part of the Feral Audio Podcast Network and has been listed as a staff favorite on iTunes multiple times. Joseph also co-hosts the Star Wars podcast feed Force Center and has released multiple comedy albums, including 2015's Rebel Scum and 2013's Flaw Fest. Before we move on to our next story, I just want to let everyone know that we've just added video from our fundraiser to our YouTube channel this week. So you can watch stories from folks such as Joe Handelsman, who worked for Obama in the White House, Arielle Duhame Ross, an amazing journalist from Vice News, and comedian Josh Gondelman. You can also watch a brand new story presentation that I did about my journey as artistic director of Story Collider and why I fell in love with scientists. I am extremely proud of the gold converse that I'm wearing in this video. So check out our channel. It's at youtube.com slash C slash the Story Collider. Our next story today is from Cassandra Williard. It was recorded in October 2017 at the High Noon Saloon in Madison, Wisconsin. As part of a show we produced in partnership with University of Wisconsin-Madison, the Wisconsin School of Business, Wisconsin Alumni Research Foundation, Starting Block, and Upstart in D2P. The theme that night was Risky Business. So I'm sitting in the doctor's office, and the nurse is all business. She prints out this big stack of papers for me, and she takes them to her desk, and I see her like whip out a green highlighter, and she marks one line on the page, and then she brings the papers over to me. And she says, I need you to read this, and taps the page, the part that she's highlighted. And I look down and I see that what she's given me is a pamphlet that she's printed out from the Centers for Disease Control. And the line that she's highlighted says, pregnant women are advised to avoid travel to areas with malaria. I am five months pregnant and I am about to fly to Mozambique with my husband to visit friends. 
and I've come there for advice about malaria medication. It's my first public health lecture via highlighter. <laughs> there are things that you expect to gain when you get pregnant, like a bunch of weight, a rosy glow, but no one really talks to you about the things that you'll lose. I realize that the world now sees me as a vessel, like a human packing container whose sole purpose is to protect my cargo. As the baby who's growing inside of me becomes more of a person, I somehow become less. And better safe than sorry becomes my guiding principle. No alcohol, no deli meats, no soft cheeses, no hot tubs. It was really hard. <laughs> Back in the nurse's office, I can feel the disapproval. I don't even have a baby yet, and already I've been deemed an unfit mother. What kind of person takes their unborn child for a joyride in Africa? I felt so ashamed. And then I felt something else. I felt angry. This is my body and my baby and my risk to take. And so I went to Africa, and I took my antimalarial pills, and I used bug spray, and I kept us safe. But I worried, too. I worried that I might slip and fall on a hike. I worried that I might contract something by eating fruit off the street. I worried about the ice in my glass. Each new adventure came with excitement, but also this impossible-to-quantify level of risk. Like, shark diving was an obvious no, but what about a safari? I'm not like a better safe than sorry kind of person, and I didn't want to become that just because I was pregnant, but I couldn't fully shake the worry either. 36 weeks into my pregnancy, a new problem arises. I find out that my daughter is wedged butt down in the womb, which is not how they're supposed to come out. So I'm likely gonna need a C-section. This is not the plan. I do not want to have my belly sliced open like a watermelon. I have never had surgery. I've never even had an IV. And so my doctor offers me this small, tiny, silver glimmer of hope. She says that if I go to the hospital, the OBs there might be able to sort of like manhandle the baby into the right position. It's an actual procedure. It's called aversion. And uh, it's supposed to be excruciatingly painful. But I still have this vision of a natural birth. So I say, yes, sign me up. The next day, the nurse calls um, to sort of give me general information about like where to park at the hospital and how to get in. And she also reminds me that I cannot eat or drink after midnight. Um, this is not welcome news. I am 36 weeks pregnant and basically ravenous all the time. And I'm also just not the kind of person who does well without food. I get hangry, like really, really hangry. My husband once tried to take a half a sandwich from me in a train station, and I growled at him. <laughs> like, that's not a figure of speech. Literally, I growled at him, and I wasn't even pregnant. But I decide, you know, I'm going to follow the rules because I rolled the dice already with Africa and I should be obedient. 
So I fast and I go to the hospital and they do all the normal hospital stuff. They put me in a gown, they put me in a hospital bed, they do the IV, they put gel all over my belly so they can do an ultrasound. But when it comes time to actually do the version, they cannot find an OB to do it. The OBs like come into the room and explain what's gonna happen and then their pager buzzes and they're like out again and I never see them. It's like a very Grey's Anatomy day um, at the hospital. So we arrive at 8.30 a.m. and four hours later, I'm still sitting in the same hospital bed. My daughter is still breech and no one has laid a hand on my belly. And they finally tell me, you can go home and come back tomorrow. And so I send my husband, I'm like, we're going straight to the donut shop. <laughs> so we do that. Um, and then I go home, but I just like, it's hours later and I cannot shake the annoyance. Um, I don't understand the rationale. I don't understand why I had to fast in the first place. So I'm a science journalist, so I channel my annoyance into research, and I sit on my couch with my laptop sort of wedged below my belly, and I Google, and I realize that the reason that they don't want you to eat is that there's a very slim chance that when they're doing the version, it could go wrong, and then they would have to do an emergency C-section. And if they had to do that, they might have to put you under. And if that happens, then it's possible there's a slim chance that I might vomit. And there's an even slimmer chance that I might aspirate some of that vomit, which would be really bad. But the chance of this is like so minuscule. It's like one in a million. I ran the numbers. And the really infuriating thing about this is that this rule, this like no eating or drinking after midnight, this isn't even a rule anymore. The American Society of Anesthesiologists adopted like looser guidelines two decades ago. But many medical professionals are just like, no, we're gonna follow the standard thing that's from ancient times. <laughs> I actually, when I was doing this research, I stumbled across this online forum for nurses, like a nurse chat room, and one nurse was like, so the rule about no eating or drinking after midnight, is that like really necessary? And this other nurse responds, it may seem like overkill, but better safe than sorry. And I just want to scream. So the next day, we have to go to the hospital again. And first I tell my husband that I want to stop at the bakery. And I get a chocolate croissant. And I really want to eat it. And I know that there's not like a real risk, but I don't want to have to lie to the nurse when we get there. So I just sort of like cradle it in my lap and stroke it like a cat. <laughs> And we go to the hospital, and it's the same sort of deal as the day before, where we're just sitting there waiting. So an hour goes by, two hours go by, and then finally an OB comes in and pulls up a chair next to the bed. And she says that she's looked at my scans and noticed my strange two-lobed placenta. This is not news to me. I know that I have a weird placenta. I actually like brought it up the day before with the resident and said, hey, you know my weird placenta? Like, that's not going to make it hard for you guys to do the version, is it? And the resident was like, no, that's going to make it easier. And now the OB is saying, it's too risky. We can't do it. She tells me that the place where they need to put pressure to somersault my daughter is also the place where there's some vessels connecting the two lobes of my placenta. And if they put too much pressure, 
She's worried that the vessel might rupture and it could create, these are her words, a silent catastrophe. I don't even let her finish talking before I turn to my husband and say, hand me that goddamn croissant. (laughs) I have fasted for two days in the hopes of having a procedure that she is now telling me would have been impossible all along. Like even a cursory glance at my scans might have revealed that I was not a candidate for this procedure. I am furious and I decide I'm not gonna follow their rules anymore. Seven days later, my water breaks, and I know that I'm gonna need to have a C-section in the next 24 hours. And I also know that as soon as I call my doctor, she's going to tell me that I can't eat. (laughs) And so before I pick up the phone, I make myself a plate of eggs. I fix myself some toast. And then I dial her number. Thank you. That was Cassandra Williard. Cassandra is a freelance science journalist who likes long walks, international travel, and infectious diseases. She earned her degree in biological aspects of conservation from the University of Wisconsin and her master's in science writing from Johns Hopkins University. She also served as Peace Corps volunteer in Bolivia. You can read her work and discover popular science and nature. She also blogs regularly for The Last Word on Nothing. After spending several years in New York City, she now lives in Madison with her husband and daughter, but she still enjoys sarcasm and wearing black. StoryCollider is grateful for the support of the Tiffany & Co. Foundation and of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. Story Collider is directed by Liz Neely and me, Aaron Barker, with help from our amazing team. The stories featured in today's podcast were from shows produced by Audrey Kearns, Cassie Soliday, Liz Neely, and Paula Croxon, with help from Joseph Scrimshaw and Brian D. Bradley. The podcast is produced by Zoe Saunders. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to the Lyric Hyperion and the High Noon Saloon for hosting these shows, and to Mrs. Deke for teaching us all a valuable lesson. Trust no one. Thanks for listening. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.